Hello, listeners. Welcome to Strength and Recovery Podcast. I'm Jay Rodenbush, the Director of Alumni Engagement, and I am here with alum Mark Cronin, and we are at the Devon facility, one of our beautiful facilities right outside the city of Philadelphia in Devon, Pennsylvania. And tonight is alumni in pa- or in-person meeting happening downstairs. We have patients and alums that come together for a recovery meeting. It's, um, it's one of my favorite meetings to go to. It's just, um, there's always a great speaker and, um, I really enjoy when I'm in the area getting to be here. So thank you for joining us, Mark. Thank you for having me. How long have you been involved with the Alumni Association? I got out in March of this year, and I've come to every meeting since you guys opened them up. Wow. So I guess first week I was out, um, probably around the middle of March. And how has that been a part of your recovery? For me, it keeps it like 100% real every time I come back here. Mm-hmm. Um this was probably one of the best treatment facilities I've been to. Um, and I honestly got the most out of being here. Mm-hmm. So I do as much as I can to give back whenever I can. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, some days I don't feel like coming out because I have some pretty long days. But I do my best to get here whenever I can. Well, we're always happy to see alumni coming back and um really interacting with patients. And I think that's something special about the Devon meeting is not only are there alums here, but you're interacting with patients and and getting to hear the stories of people who are out living life in recovery. Um, I just think it's a really special time. It is for them because I know for me, um, you know, going to multiple treatments that when people would come back and you could actually see that they were like making progress mm-hmm. and that like life wasn't so bad or as bad as you had thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause when you get sober, obviously you have no idea like how to find joy in things. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, seeing people come back on a like weekly basis, um, and seeing like how their life changes over a period of time, I th- I feel it gives the people that are in here now a lot to look forward to. Why don't you take us back to March of last year? What was that like? Um, what being in here or oh, before how about I before, got here? Before you or got like here, the whole journey before I got. How about here? wherever you want to start, wherever you're comfortable. So, um, I mean, I started going to treatment at the age of 19. Um, so it was like 22 years. Um, there were like multiple trips to prison. Um, I got divorced in that time. I've lost custody of my children. Um, I have a daughter who's 11 that I have not seen in 11 years. Um, and I have a son who just turned 19 in August and I have not seen him in the last 11 years. So, I mean, 
a lot of that happened early on. Um, I think I was like 32 when I went to jail for the first time. And that really kicked off a like 10 year span of just not having any interest in really wanting to get sober. Um, I held a lot of resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, for the first time since I was like 23, had like really no real responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So they both played a part in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the most time I had sober was every time I spent in jail. Um, I had a stint with Delaware County's drug court for about 29 months in two weeks. And I wound up violating with two weeks to go and was Mm -hmm. terminated from the program. Um, I came home in 2017 from state prison and pretty much from the time I came home till February of this year, um, I was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in like a very toxic relationship. We were both using together. Um, the people we lived with, her parents were huge enablers. Obviously COVID hit. So there was a extra influx of money. Um, and I used all that as excuses mm-hmm. to like, just continue doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it got to be like February, um, you know, I work for a seasonal company, right? And um, I knew at some point that I was going to lose my job. It was just a matter of time if I continued to do what mm-hmm. I was doing. But it was more the fact that, like, I was living in such darkness. And, um, like, I just wasn't willing to continue living that way. Mm-hmm. So I, like, really had two options of that. It was either like just continue to do what I was doing until I eventually killed myself, right? Mm-hmm. Or seek treatment. So I chose to come back to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably the best decision I've made in the last 22 years, honestly. Um, you know, and I, I was kind of partial to how I picked this place because um, one of the people that works for you used to be my family counselor okay. at, when I was in drug court. Okay. Um, I have a lot of respect for her. I don't know if I can say her name. Sure. She works with us. Yeah. So of course. Trish Caldwell was my family counselor. Awesome. Okay. Um, so I have a lot of respect for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew she was here. So that was one of the reasons why I chose to come here. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea what her role was here mm-hmm. um, until I got here. Um, but yeah, so that was the primary reason why I pis- had picked this facility. The best thing about this place is that they made you accountable for yourself. Mm-hmm. And like that was something I really lacked was accountability. Right? So like I have to hold myself accountable for my own recovery. So that means like on days I don't want to go to meetings, they're the days that I have to get up and go to a meeting. Um, You know, when I 
don't want to ask somebody for help, that's probably the time that I need to reach out to somebody, whether it's my sponsor, someone I've met in the meetings, um, or just like another alcoholic or addict, Mm -hmm. you know, um, then, um, you know, my counselor was very good when I was here, um, you know, and he really put a lot of things in perspective for me. Mm -hmm. I like to play the blame everybody else for my problems. Um, I, as I've gone through the steps now, like I found out that like I was very selfish and self-centered, right? Um, I had a very big ego and that really kept me from going back to treatment a lot sooner than I did, mm-hmm. which I found that out. Talk, going through talk the steps. to me about that a little bit. Like how would ego get in the way of recovery? Well, for me, it was like twofold. So like the pride and the ego went hand in hand with Mm -hmm. that. So I had been in like treatment before. Mm -hmm. So my ego told me I knew what I had to do, right? I was different and that I wasn't as bad as the people that are in treatment. But then my pride stopped me from asking for help because I knew I needed to go back to treatment because that was the only way I could get past the physical part of it. But I always told myself that I would be able to do it on my own. So like that's where my pride and ego were fighting each other. And so you, you talk about going through the steps. How pivotal was that? And, and had you done it before? Was this the first time you kind of embraced it? What was different? This is the first time I've ever gone through the steps. Really? Yes. So for me, it was the most pivotal, pivotal part, mm-hmm. 100%. Um, I thought I knew who I was, mm-hmm. and really I had no idea, right? Because I had for so long been doing the same thing that I didn't really know who I really was, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's what those steps are designed to do. Like it's all about like your internal struggles. Um, And it's all about finding yourself. And that was the biggest part that has helped me so far. And like, I found a really good sponsor and he wasted no time and he threw me right into it. Right. Um, Like I did struggle with like the whole higher power thing. Mm -hmm. My mom is extremely Catholic. Um, you know, and we were raised Catholic. I've had religious schooling. Um, so I struggled with the difference between religion and spirituality, mm-hmm. which I f- have come to learn are like two separate entities, right? Um, so like once I was able to get over that hurdle and realize that like there is something else out there because a i'm still alive and b my mom prayed that i would stay safe Mm -hmm. this whole time right 
Um, so those were like the two things that really got me thinking about like, well, obviously I was taught to believe in God, mm -hmm. but I didn't really have that faith in it um, because of all the things that were happening in my life. But I come to find out like I was the cause of all of it, right? Mm -hmm. So getting past that step three, step two and step three were the the biggest turning point. And talk through for listeners who aren't familiar with the steps. You're talking about two and three were difficult for you? They were very difficult. And like, what are those steps? So step two is just believing that a power greater than yourself could restore you to sanity. Because I never thought I was really insane. But when you take a look at my thinking and like my patterns and my behaviors, like normal people don't do that type of thing. Or at least they don't repeat the same things over and over and mm -hmm. over again, right? And then step three is like turning my will over. Because when I run on my will and like what I want to do, it's done nothing but get me in trouble. So three was hard. So three is very hard, right? And it's it's not like it stops when you're done it. Like it's something I have to like practice. And I think that goes every back to like what you said, my ego, I want to be in control. Right. And so turning your will over. It had to be tough. It's extremely difficult. Was there a moment that you can look back to and you say, that's when it happened? Or was it a process? No, it was more of a process. Like I started noticing things like when I started to like trying to not control certain situations that I would have tried to control before. So talk about life on life's terms. Correct. Um, so... And then, like, I would see, like, things would, like, happen that would, like, actually benefit me. Mm -hmm. That's when it got to be a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll tell you, I take my will back multiple times a day, right? And it usually doesn't work out too well mm -hmm. when it happens. And um, do you recognize that? You're like, oh, man. I do. I totally recognize it. Um, I think one thing I love about being around people that are really working their program is hearing them say, you know what? I'm carrying a resentment and immediately that kind of, and they're willing to say, you know what? I think I have a resentment with you or with the situation. And I kind of love the, the, I think we, I don't know. I grew up in an environment sometimes where we swept things under the rug a lot, right. or we didn't talk about things. Yes. And 100%. so when someone's working a program, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what's that like to start confronting some of those things that um, are typically swept under the rug? I mean, that's a difficult part. And like, that's what all of this teaches you to do. Because mm -hmm. my household, um, you know, my dad was not like somebody that ever showed emotion. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, my, and it was like for good reasons, right? We want to be polite. We want to get along. It, it's not like we had bad motives. No, for not dealing with resentments, right? As they come up. No, not at all. But we, you know, like so, like when you see, like 
you know, your family dynamics and how they play a part on how you handle your feelings. Um, it plays a lot into, you know, every aspect of your life. Like we never really showed emotion. Um, we never really talked about our feelings. Mm -hmm. So like I stuffed everything, right? Could it be, how liberating is it to be able to say, you know what, I'm starting to carry a resentment. It's very liberating because then I don't have to like take it into every relationship or every interaction I meet with people. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's what happens. The resentment just turns to anger and I might not be angry at you. I might not be angry at this person, but when I interact with you, that's where the anger comes out. But how scary is it to, because uh, it's a practice, right? How is it in the beginning? Just, I know it's liberating, but isn't, isn't there also like a fear that goes with that? Yeah, there's a fear of letting things go because mm -hmm. you're uh, like, I was not used to letting things go. Right. So like, but I also lived my life like in the negative. Mm -hmm. So it carried on to me like being angry all the time. Mm -hmm. And then. So be, so being able to recognize that you have a resentment towards somebody but it's more or less to recognize the part that you play in the situation, right? Like it's not always just that person's fault. Like there's always two parts to an argument, mm -hmm. right? I would never be able to accept my part in it. Like I would think I was right and like you were wrong and you didn't do what I did, what I wanted you to do. So like there goes my resentment, mm. right? But when I was able to accept like my part in situations and why people reacted the way they did, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to let those resentments go. So you got through steps two and three. Mm -hmm. And then were there other steps that really were pivotal? Well, for me, um, step six which is like where you, you're ready to ask God, remove your defects of character. And then step seven is like you humbly ask him to remove your shortcomings, which is the same thing as a defect in character. It's just mm -hmm. a different word. Um, we're big because, you know, like to be humble is to like think – not think less of yourself, but think of yourself less, right? Mm. So for someone like me who's very selfish and self-centered and it's like all about me to actually go out and think about other people um, and think about like where they could possibly be at a given point in time in their life um, and treat them with respect, dignity, and kindness on a daily basis, regardless of how they interact with you. That was more freeing for me because I'm not so consumed with myself. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm not always thinking about myself and what's best for me and what's going to benefit me the most. Mm -hmm. So like that is like pretty much like the crutch of like, my recovery and you go back to these steps often 
Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Like my sponsor taught me that it's like you live in steps four through nine, right? Um, and like they're the action part of the steps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because like on a daily basis, those five steps are going to come up. Mm-hmm. right there's going to be times where like i'm so consumed in myself that it's going to lead to resentments and then i'm going to have to make an amends mm-hmm. for the way i act can you give an example of an amends for me it's like um i mean i had i i still have tons of amends to make mm-hmm. right um but basically you know i when I make an amends and I can use my mom for an example, cause I've done hers. It's, it's, I'm just trying to repair that relationship that got broken. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mom's obviously been on this journey with me f- since the first time I went to rehab. So for 22 years, you know, um, I've repeatedly broken her trust. Um, I've left her multiple nights, probably multiple sleepless nights, worrying about whether I was even alive. Um, I would disappear for multiple months on end. She wouldn't know if I was alive or not, like, because I was sitting in jail. Like, I would never call home. Um, so, going to have to talk to her and let her her know that like I'm sorry for all of that right and Mm -hmm. then like have to repair that relationship like that's what the whole amends process is about um you know today my mom and I have a great relationship um it's gotten a lot better since my dad passed away like right after I came home um you know I try like and so now like I just make a living amends to her, which is like, I I remain sober and I try to go see her once a week and have dinner with her and just sit down and talk with her, you know? And like, that's what I can do to keep her at peace. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Um, When we started this conversation, you talked about and I don't know exactly how you said it, but the word stuck out to me that you have found joy in recovery. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, there's kind of a difference between happiness and joy, right? Right. And I think you use that word kind of specifically, like it's a deeper word. What's life like now and what is it like to live in joy? Well, I mean, A, I wake up every morning and like I don't have regret. Because I'm not on it like 99% of the time, I'm not out there just creating a mess of a my life and the lives of other people around Mm -hmm. me, um, and especially the lives of people that care about me. Um, but like, you know, the joy comes from a lot of it has to do with like that spiritual connection. Right. And it's like, I'm just filled with like kindness and empathy and, you know, I'm happy. Um, And that's where like that joy comes from. Like I enjoy 
going to work. You know, I enjoy interacting with people. Um, you know, I, I've learned to get back into some of the, the hobbies that I stopped doing, like the minute I picked up drugs. Um, and, you know, by doing that stuff, it allows me to see that, like, there is a lot more to life mm -hmm. than, you know, just trying to chase the next high every single day. What would be, you know, you said you pursued treatment from the time you were 19. And I know a lot of people get into this route where it's like, I've tried treatment. I, I don't want to do that again. Um, what would you say to someone who's kind of there? They, they feel like they've done it all. They've tried it all and it just hasn't worked. What would you say? What's your advice to them today? I mean, for me, it was... I mean, it's kind of hard because for me, I didn't really do a lot of what was asked, right? Um, so when you're pursuing treatment and you've done it multiple, multiple times and you just think it's not going to work for you or, you know, it's just not for you. I mean, that's like an internal answer that you have to find. Like, why did I not succeed at recovery all those other times, right? So like when I came in, it was like one of the questions like I specifically asked myself, it's not so much what I did wrong mm -hmm. in it, it's, it's what didn't I do correct? Right. I like that. So for me, it was like, I never worked the steps. I never got a sponsor. I would go to meetings and then I would stop. I would allow external factors in my life to take over. Like I would work too much. Um, then my stress level would get too high. I didn't have any releases. The only release I knew was to turn mm -hmm. to drugs or alcohol. Because that fulfilled that sense of like what I was missing mm -hmm. inside, right? And it and it it calmed my mind down. It stopped me from thinking so much about what was gonna happen tomorrow or where I was gonna get money from or what bills were gonna get paid or what wasn't gonna get paid, or and it also took away like living in the past of like the woulda, shoulda, couldas, mm. right? And like when you start living in the past and you think about like all the times like, oh, well, if I had only done this, like my life would have been better. If I had only done this, I would be so far in life. I think that's hard for everybody, right? right. Like you start looking and it's like, man, maybe I should have gone to school for this. Maybe, I, you know, it's hard not to live, like you said, in that coulda, shoulda, woulda. Right. So, I mean... Like the number one thing is like just trying to stay like in the present day mm. because honestly, like whatever I do today is going to set me up for tomorrow. Just for today. Right. Um, but if I like live in tomorrow all the time, like it's just going to be a whole bunch of worry mm -hmm. for like the foreseeable future. 
Mark, I really appreciate our conversation today. Um, we usually end with favorite recovery quote. Do you have one and one you want to share? Um, I guess my favorite recovery quote, I don't know. I, there, there's a, there's a couple of them. And you can share more than one. But, um, I mean, like for me, my favorite thing and, and the thing I have to tell myself is, is like, like just let it go. Mm. Like that's it because like when i hold on to things like that's when i start to get myself in trouble it's like i had a very tough time just letting things go and just letting things be the way that they are mm -hmm. so just let it go just let it go well thank you so much mark appreciate your wisdom i'm so glad you're part of the alumni association we're so glad to have you well thanks for having me Thank you for joining us today for the Strength and Recovery podcast. Real people, real experiences, real hope. This podcast is presented by the Alumni Association of Recovery Centers of America. If you're interested in learning more, visit rcaalumni.com. Here, you can fill out our web form to make sure you're receiving our daily recovery emails and are notified of special events. The Alumni Association of RCA exists to connect individuals to an active recovery community. It is our goal to work with alumni to help them succeed, belong, and ultimately serve others. We help our alumni succeed by hosting more than 120 recovery support meetings per month with both virtual and in-person offerings of big book studies, speaker meetings, beginners meetings, Monday through Friday daily inspiration meetings, meetings for men and women, and faith-based meetings. Second, we create a welcoming community that provides a sense of belonging with a full calendar of events each month. Speaker series, barbecues, holiday celebrations, bowling, sporting events, theater shows, and much more. Thirdly, we provide an opportunity for our alumni to serve both the recovery community and in our local neighborhoods. We offer speaker commitments, chair commitments, mentoring opportunities in our facilities, volunteering at food banks, recovery and overdose awareness events. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Recovery Centers of America provides inpatient and outpatient treatment and has locations in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Indiana, and Illinois. Recovery Centers of America, or RCA, was founded to break down barriers to expert treatment. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are in network with major insurance providers, and provide evidence-based treatment in our world-class facilities. If you, or someone you know needs help, call 1-800-RECOVERY and know we are here for you.